On this episode, I interviewed Brandon Jones, who is a high-performance coach that really specializes in running specifically, whether that be running faster, acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, and so on. Um, so the main points we talked about today are improving running biomechanics, whether that be for performance or for reducing injury risk. We also talked about teaching acceleration in different ways. He likes to teach acceleration with different drills, exercises, and so on. We talked about deceleration and change of direction, things he likes to focus on that mechanically and drills he likes to implement. And we also talked about how he likes to design and try to incorporate as much of this as possible into team-based settings. So it's a really good episode, especially on the mechanics of running as it's something that uh, we touched on here that's not always learned in, in strength and conditioning. It's a lot more maybe just strength-based stuff, but the field-based stuff is also very, 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 very important. So yeah, great episode with Brandon. Appreciate him being on. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood. And today I have on Brandon Jones, who, who is a high performance coach that specializes uh, in, in running uh, and has had multiple positions across a couple different um, sports and stuff. But today is our main topic is going to be kind of on running mechanics, speed, development, acceleration, and so on. So thanks for being on, Brandon. Uh, if First, if you just want to talk to talk to us a little bit about kind of your background, uh, education, how you got into this stuff, um, your athletic background, because I have history in that, and then maybe your kind of your current position yeah thanks for having me on uh we'll pretty much start on my background as was i went into university obviously through after high school and then went straight into a obviously sports science degree um and that's something that everyone now these days goes into and it was a great experience for me just to learn like i've always had a passion for sports i played you know team sports all the way through my junior years and into senior years and then um mainly cricket and then went into uh, track and field when I was about 21. So when I finished my university degree, I was um, working in a gym as a personal trainer as well, kind of uh, part-time while I was studying, which was great just to be able to work with kind of general population, trying to just work with different types of people, learning things from different coaches, which was great. And then um, I went into uh, obviously the sports side of things and got myself with a few different amateur kind of sports clubs at the time just to get a bit of that professional experience because I remember when I first tried to get into a pro sport team it was um, the feedback that I got was is that a lot of applicants had you know experience with grassroots sporting clubs and working with them and 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 so I just started to work with about four or five clubs that were in different across different sectors or different uh, teams in sports and uh, that was the thing that it helped me get into a professional sporting team like the Parramatta Eels, at least in the junior development pathway system. Um, and my biggest background is in speed development. So I kind of found a bit of a love in uh, running biomechanics, in speed development overall for team sport athletes, as well as, you know, I was just fascinated with the fact that we could run so fast, you know, and we are just able to do things that other athletes probably couldn't do. So that was pretty cool. And then I found a love for the sport for myself when I started to compete in it. I came into the sport pretty late at 21. Um, and then I'm still competing in the 100 metres and 200 metres now with, you know, a personal best time of 10.70. So for me, it's 
it's something that I really do enjoy and I found my passion that way. I work with many different coaches here in Australia. I went overseas to England and worked with Speedworks, which is basically Jonas Dodo's company and uh, Marvin Rowe and a few of the guys over there. They're really good. So they work with a lot of the England kind of under 20s athletes coming through. You got a few professional kind of athletes there that were there, like Reese Prescott, CJ Uja, that were top level sprinters there and still are. And then um, I did some stuff with Altus as well and learned a lot of guys from Dan Paff and Stu McMillan. So as soon as I found that passion, that was where my path led to. And um, now I started obviously the running coach about a year ago. Um, and, you know, focusing mainly on helping athletes get faster and making sure that I can bring what's happening over in America and England back to here in Australia and also help all the other S&C coaches out there because we don't really learn a lot in our sports science course at all about running and speed development, like barely anything. And um, it's an area that we definitely need to improve on and um, I'm be able to come back here and do some seminars and educational stuff on speed development, which is something that I love, is, is going to be great. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and that's that, that's all great things because you went you know all over to figure out all this great knowledge, and then you also use it on yourself to um, you know better yourself an athlete. So you kind of get that experience of being you know the coach and the athlete, which I think is huge. And then I totally agree with the the aspect of strength and conditioning is a lot more strength, I guess heavy at least from um, school system wise from what I've I've kind of went through as well. So I think having that conditioning side of things and the speed and the biomechanics and the mechanics of running is uh, really important. So I guess we may kind of move into that as our, our first topic here, just the mechanics of running and um, breaking it down into two different groups with a performance and an injury. So maybe if we first kind of just start on performance, I mean, you can just talk about in general the mechanics for performance um, of, and then kind of uh, what, what you focus on uh, most when you're trying to help someone. Yeah, like when we're looking at running, especially with running biomechanics, every athlete I've kind of worked with has had some type of biomechanical fault or they've been told a certain way to run by a certain coach. And, you know, like we, you've seen obviously in the past in a lot of sports that some athletes try and chase frequency over the first five to 10 meters. Some athletes, you know, try and, you know, go for distance. Like there's, there's never been this kind of uh, educational protocol for these younger athletes coming through and saying, hey, look, teaching them how to properly project out or teaching them how to run vertically for top speed and maximum velocity. So when we're looking at improving running biomechanics overall, I start with a lot of my guys just on the basics. Like I start on the A skip, the B skip, like many other coaches do, but there are certain ways that you teach an A skip and you teach a B skip. And so with with most of my guys, they, they have to understand is that running is a plyometric exercise. You know, sprinting is plyometric in itself. You know, the, it's the quickest amount of ground contact time that you'll get. So being able to skip and do an A march is something that you need to be able to master over time. Whereas with a lot of guys that are at a very low training age, when they do an A skip, they end up having two feet on the ground. They're not really pushing off the ground. They're not being able to project themselves up or forward. And it's the same with the B. You get a guy to do a proper B skip and they struggle because they don't know how to hop and cycle their legs at the same time. So I start with very much the basics there and progress. I think, you know, when you're looking at frontside mechanics, we need to look definitely at frontside mechanics for our athletes. Um, every athlete I've probably got has had backside mechanics with when they first come to me. And that's very, very common. I started even when I was in track and field and I was 
very backside. So it's, I think we develop backside mechanics over years and years of playing our team sports and not obviously being taught the proper running by mechanics overall. So, you just want to maybe sorry. Do you maybe yep. just want to quickly define um, front side and backside mechanics for you? Yeah, just um, think about understanding of it. Yeah, so front side. If for anyone that's listening, it's when you when your foot touches the ground, you're then picking your feet up on your legs up and moving them forward rather than spending too long on the ground and your legs are staying behind your hips or behind your body. So if you see anyone that's uh, when they're trying to cycle their legs at top velocity, at maximum velocity you'll see them flick their, flick their knee, flick their heel back, right? And it kind of, and the leg, the thigh stays behind the hip. That's when you know that it's rear side or backside mechanics. But when the person is using front side mechanics, as soon as they come off the ground, they bend from the knee and then they also bend, and then they also bend from the hip to bring their knee through at the same time. It's like a simultaneous motion. So that's front side mechanics. So there's a differentiation there that a lot of coach can, coaches can see. When you've got an athlete that's got backside mechanics, you'll see that they'll have a really, really long kind of stride length. They'll be very elongated. You'll see that when their foot touches the ground, they're pushing almost too long on the ground. And so their back leg, will be, will be, their pelvis will become over-rotated and posteriorly rotated where their legs are so far, far behind their body. So, and what that does is it actually causes more strain on the lower back and the hamstrings is what people don't necessarily understand. And I've obviously been seeing a lot of articles these days at the moment on how sprinting improves hamstring resilience. You know, like how I'm seeing a lot now, and especially in the rehab scene, that sprinting is being uh, the preferred exercise compared to Nordic curls because it's, you know, you're able to, nothing can simulate that. Nothing can simulate the, the ground contact times or even just the, the amount of force you put in compared mm. to what a naughty curl was. So it's interesting to now see that all this information is now coming out when you know, a lot of track coaches have been sprinting with their athletes for years and they've been doing this for years. Um, so that's something that I look at with a lot of my guys with technique is the front side and backside uh, mechanics. Like I said, majority of athletes are backside. Um, at least to begin with, while you're getting them. So generally, their pelvis will over-rotate. They will spend longer behind their body, which will mean that, you know, overall, they're, they're, they're stepping out in front of their body as well. So they're stepping out in front of the center of mass, which is placing an, an awful amount of load on the, di- on the higher part of the hamstring uh, towards the hip. So we know that hamstring injuries are very common in team sports and field sports. So we need to improve running biomechanics to make sure that our athletes can accelerate get to maximum velocity and they'll also work on deceleration mechanics as well. Mm-hmm. What would you say um, some, uh, would you say the A skip, B skip and so on, are those kind of the ones you would do to kind of fix these, um, these mechanical, the issues, sorry, in the, in the biomechanics? Yeah, like I'll use A skip and B skip for contextual, like just to teach the context of what upright kind of running mechanics feels like and looks like. Mm-hmm. And then I would go into a dribble. So if anyone doesn't know what ankling is or dribbling, that's what sometimes they would call it. You'll do like a dribble calf or dribble ankle, dribble calf, dribble knee. And you can stand still and do these exercises. You can walk them and then you can run them. So there's a progression model that you can use for a dribble. And effectively what that dribble is, is you're picking your feet up and bring them forward. Like front side mechanics, which is what we want to do. You're just doing that at different heights, which means we can work on the, the acceleration kind of phase of a ankling kind of drill. And then we can do it a dribble calf which will be more towards our transition when we're getting from 20, 30, 40. 
then we can get into an over the knee, ankle over the knee, which will mean that um, we're at top speed, maximum velocity height, which is exactly what we want. So the dribbles and exercise that I think every coach should be implementing, especially for their athletes, because it's very easy to teach. You break it down into three main cues of just, you know, dorsiflexing the ankle, but picking the ankle, sorry, picking the foot up above the knee, then releasing the shin angle in line with the knee, and then stepping down and back towards the ground whilst maintaining dorsiflexion. And if you can continue to do it, you can walk it with your athletes and then eventually get it into a run where then you can manipulate the dribble to being you can use arms or you can use a stick and put it above head for the guys to teach more core and lateral stability and core stability and trunk stability when you're running. And just it's a great teaching tool. So effectively, we want to get our athletes to dribbling over the knee. And a lot of athletes really struggle with the flexibility in that area. They can't get the knee height or the knee lift that high because they either A, have tight hip flexors or they've got tight glutes or they've got weak hip flexors and weak glutes. So we need to look at tightness as a format of uh, can be weakness as well. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, other sort of uh, mechanics you look at other than just kind of those front versus backside mechanics as well for, for performance? Yeah, so we look at definitely – Arm mechanics, which is a main, a massive one. So arms account for probably 20 to 25% of your maximum velocity. So if the athlete can't use their arms effectively or they've got, they can't, they've got weak arms and that means that it's going to stop them from either A, when they're in acceleration phase, getting out full extension on the movement and B, when they're in top flight, is being able to block at the top. So what blocking really means is when your forearm kind of gets perpendicular to where your, your, your shin angle is, right, same, same angle, then what happens is your knee and thigh blocks as well. So when your arm gets up to that vertical height, that's when your knee and thigh is going to block at the same time, which means it's not going any higher. It's going to go lower than that. It's just going to start going down. So we need to be fully aware of what our arms do and how that helps us with actually pulling us up and forward as well. So we do some arm drills. Um, we definitely focus a little bit on obviously some plyometric exercises as well just to make sure that we're increasing our you know, um, reactive elasticity kind of uh, strength as well as our um, normal power and speed strength. So those are the basics that I really focus on with a lot of my guys initially. And then we can get into some more kind of advanced stuff with wicket drills and hurdles and all that you know, stuff that really focuses on reactivity as well. And then what about uh, any specific arm drills just for the arms that you try to work on to make sure that's that's going right? Yeah, so easy one you can really do is stand in front of the mirror. What you want to do is you want to get both your arms at 90 degrees, right? So they'll be – and then what you're going to aim for is one arm's going to go shoulder height, okay? The other arm's going to go behind the body and it's going to be behind your pocket, right? So we some people say cheek to cheek. I don't like to use cheek to cheek because what happens is you get your front arm gets too high, right? It gets too high for where it needs. It only needs to get up to shoulder height because that's when you'll start to get the perpendicular as well. So a simple, easy drill there. You've got that. You'll do a minute slow where you're doing arm kind of swings with your feet together facing the mirror. The next minute you'll do it at a medium kind of speed, right? And you're still maintaining that same kind of speed and rhythm. And then your last minute you'll do it as a fast, as fast as you can. But what you don't want to see is you're losing that 90-degree angle in your arms. You don't want to see that 
you know, you're starting to bend your arms more or less or you're trying to extend. So we really want to think about keeping that fixed arm angle because when we go down into that swing phase, it's how our arm catches in extension. Then it retracts to go back into flexion again. Mm-hmm. One thing that to focus on with the arms as well is to make sure that we're not uh, swinging from the bicep we're actually, or the tricep. We're actually swinging from the shoulder. So you need to swing from the shoulder in flexion and extension. So if there's any coaches that are listening, you need to think about with your guys, like if you did a front raise, it's the exact same as what you'll do with an arm swing, right? Is that you need to think about flexion of the shoulder rather than flexion of the bicep. That's a key thing for a lot of guys if they're coaching is we don't want to see the athlete flex from the bicep to begin with. They can do it at the end when it's at that end phase, but we just want to see them flex from the shoulder first. Mm-hmm. And moving on kind of just, if we're kind of going up the body, what about uh, trunk rotation? How do you, what do you work on that? What are the proper biomechanics you want to get for that of um, how you want the trunk to act during a proper running mechanics? Yeah, so th- when, you, when you're moving the arms efficiently, the trunk's going to move no matter what because the, the upper body and the lower body have to work in harmony with each other. So they're always going to move. So we just need to make sure that we're maintaining stiffness through our trunk as much as we can. So like you could do that dribble exercise with a stick overhead. You can do a dribble calf and that's a great way of actually, when, when the stick's overhead, it works on maintaining your trunk stability, which is exactly what we need to do in, in maximum velocity and top speed. So if there's other things that you can also do, obviously you've got your side plank variations as well that work on building some strength and resilience. Um, you can do it not just a side plank with a basic one. You can also do it with a knee lift, which that side plank with a knee lift is great for anyone that's in want to focus on running side of things is because now you're teaching when the body's working in a kind of running motion, how you're able to control that. One of my kind of uh, go-to exercises at the moment, though, that probably isn't used is I do a pal-off press in an A-march position. Okay, so this is, you don't need a heavy resistance band. You can go real, real light, but it's, you can see how in- unstable you are when you add just a small amount of resistance. You're in an A-march position and then you do a pal-off press and you see how much lateral stability tries to pull you the other way. And so that's just another way. You can do it overhead kind of pal-off as well. So you can do it in an A-march position. So there are progressions there, but the core is a massive role. And it's um, we need to make sure that we're training it not only in the gym, but on the track with our kind of stick drills or even hands above head if you don't have a stick, just to make sure that we're learning how to control our trunk when we're getting into top speed. And then what about, uh, I guess, the last kind of bit, um, the main joint, what about ankle, ankle and ankle stiffness? And how is there anything, um, how to work on that? And uh, what do you look for when assessing someone that's running? Yeah, ankles, like probably the, it's probably the most underrated area at the moment. Everyone's focuses a lot on glute and hammies. But I think training the feet is, is very, very powerful at the, for the athlete. It's something that even I've had to improve on as an athlete and something that I don't look at a lot often. And... A lot of, you know, if you look at calf injuries and Achilles injuries are actually coming from the feet. And generally, if we're not strengthening our plantar fascia or we're not releasing our plantar fascia, you know, we're not doing exercises, isometric holds for our Achilles or we're not doing enough rep ranges to strengthen our soleus and our Achilles. So in our program, we do a lot of that stuff at the end of our gym work. Um, And then in our running work, we obviously have our jumps. So our jumps is definitely going to help on strengthening the Achilles 
and also strengthening a lot of our gastroc and soleus muscles as well. So pogos, great exercise, you know, one exercise I think that can be performed better though with a lot of athletes is they need to understand that you're obviously dorsiflexing the ankle, but you need to make sure that you're maintaining stiff knee and hip and ankle contacts. So it's a, it, you know, oftentimes I see with pogos, even in, in gyms is when the athlete's doing it, the knees aren't necessarily caving in like we, like you would normally see. It's that their knees are just bending when they're touching the ground. A true pogo, when you're really doing it, should be as stiff as possible. It should almost be straight leg. So that's one, one thing that will help. And you want to think about not necessarily jumping as high as possible, but you want to think about like it's still putting enough power into the ground. You're not just kind of hopping off the ground because you do need to train that um, elasticity ability as well. Um, and then also rudiment jumps. Rudiment jumps are definitely one of the exercises that you can do double leg hops, single leg hops, but making sure you're doing the exact same thing. You have to maintain stiff knee, ankle and, uh, and hip ground contacts, like you're not sinking. So that's the pliers that are probably used for, for jumps. And then in the gym, I'd be using stuff like if I was doing a Bulgarian kind of lunge, I would probably do it even with um, in a calf race position. So then you're holding that uh, basically contraction in your soleus for the whole, you know, eight to 10 reps of the Bulgarian. So you're getting a, almost hitting two birds in one stone there. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about context, context about how you can use, you know, the feet, how you can train the plantar fascia in in different mo- motions or the Achilles. You know, some people do Bulgarians where they're on a plate, uh, where they're just their toes are on the plate and then the heel isn't supported, where they've got to work hard on, on um, making sure that they're maintaining that uh, strength in the Achilles. So I think it's definitely massive. You need to look definitely at your program if it's a part of your, your warm-up or even just as a part of your C sequence of your uh, drills is to make sure that you're doing stuff to strengthen the Achilles, stuff to strengthen the gastroc and the soleus, and also stuff to strengthen the plantar fascia underneath your feet. Um, even the TBRs anterior, we're doing some dorsiflexion kind of exercises as well. So definitely underrated area, but it should should be looked at a lot more. Mm-hmm. And then I know you talked you touched a little bit on kind of the the hamstring um, as one of the areas uh, for for injury with um, sprinting and sprinting mechanics. Do you have uh, any? You want to expand on that anymore, or is there any uh, other areas that for making sure you have proper sprint mechanics is going to uh, uh, try to decrease risk of uh, injuries? Yeah, so I think most hamstring injuries come from obviously generally the athlete has either had too much load going on, or b they're strike they're striking in front of the center of mass that's generally what's going to happen and they've just done it way too many times and now the hamstring can't take it anymore other times obviously we can see in sports is deceleration when an athlete tries to decelerate and change direction but if we're looking at particularly just on sprinting mechanics it would definitely be the athlete overstriding, landing in front of the center of mass the first ground contact that they're going to be they're going to feel that all the shock straight into their hamstrings and it's just repetition after repetition of that bad running mechanic that's going to lead to a hamstring tear, that's going to lead to a strain, anything moving forward. So one that's one area I definitely want to see an improvement, especially in team sports, is if we're going to be teaching much better running mechanics now, we need to make sure that all of our athletes understand that you know this is what's going to help you not only strengthen your hamstrings but also prevent them as well. Mm. So it's, it's a common area right now where 
every team sport athlete is going to have a different style of running, but we need to reiterate the biomechanics of running for each athlete. We need to help each athlete fix them at a young age all the way through to professional sport. Otherwise, they're just going to get those reoccurring hamstring injuries. And as you would probably know as a coach, the more hamstring injuries you continue to get, the more chance you're going to get them. So, um, and further on knee injuries, they go with it. Yeah. Is there a specific drill or things you like to focus on when trying to fix? Because you said if they're striking in front of their center mass. So um, maybe explain kind of the striking in front of the center mass. And then is there anything you like to do to try and help fix that? Yeah. So the striking in front of center mass, say, for example, is if you are, if you were stepping in front of your body, if you're standing up right now and you, you walked forward, your feet would land in front of in front of your center of mass, meaning in front of your hips, right? So what we want to see is the foot landing underneath your hips. So all you do is as soon as you touch the ground, you move forward. So you don't take time having to transition your weight from onto the heel or onto the the sole of the foot and then push off So to to the next step. So we just want you to be able to push off to the next step. That's kind of like a, a way, if anyone's listening, that you can understand is we're spending less time on the ground by striking under our center of mass to be able to get to the next step and then do the exact same thing again and again for the desired distance that we need. Um, as an exercise that we can use, like I said, an ace skip is a good one. I like to use the dribbles, especially over the knee as another one. You can use wickets, but I definitely don't suggest using wickets if the athlete hasn't got the concept of how to dribble yet because if the athlete cannot dribble yet, they're not going to be able to fluently run over wickets and be able to maintain consistent technique and form. Um, so, yeah, the dribble is an exercise I definitely love to go back to as to fix that because if you are doing it properly and you're releasing the shin angle and pushing down and back towards the ground, you will actually land under your center mass. And then you can instantly, if you want to get to maybe 30, 40, 50 meters of running, you can increase the speed of the dribble, right, which will then increase mm-hmm. the stride length on top of that. And then you can also just work on control. So it's like you're in the gym, you're doing a bit of weightlifting, you might teach the deadlift. Then as they get more proficient using the bar or the kettlebell, then you increase the intensity a little bit. It's the same with running. It's thinking about teaching the technique first, then going and increasing the intensity once they've done it, then reevaluate their technique under intensity and load and going again. So it's just a never-ending cycle. Mm-hmm. Is there any other main um, mechanical issues you like to work on to try to reduce risk of injury or um, anything like that? Um, in terms of probably mechanics, like ankles is obviously something that I spoke a little bit about before. Um, you know, a lot of athletes get a lot of medial calf pain if they do, especially if they're doing change of direction mechanics. So, you know, we need to look at that just a little bit and how we're doing our programming. And it's important that we kind of work with our physiotherapists uh, to make sure that we've got proper prehab and rehab programs. So generally, yeah, hamstring and ankles are probably the area that I look at the most. I think that the knee and like these areas can can be uh, like can be worked on, as I would say, in, in a proper gym program. Uh, glute strength, of course, uh, hip stability, you know, making sure like that's one thing, I guess, another area is hip stability. A lot of athletes do have tighter hips naturally. So if you do have tighter hips, then you aren't able to get a high enough knee lift, which means that you are also not able to open up in top speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you also have tighter hips, then you're at a higher risk of getting injuries such as hamstring and knee injuries as well because you don't have the hamstring length or you don't have the hip flexor length to be able to basically react to forces 
at a high level as well. So I think the stiffer you are in that area, it actually limits you to what how fast that you can actually run and also decelerate yeah. and accelerate. So doing drills like 90-90s to work on, obviously hip, hip mobility, doing hurdle stepovers uh, as well, working on thoracic mobility. Um, yep. So sometimes like a lot of injuries that happen sometimes from the hamstring or the ankle can come from the upper body. You know, it can come from the thoracic spine. You know, it can come from uh, the left shoulder. It can come from different areas like this. And Dan Paff's a great person that talks about this. He's an athlete, Akani Simbini, had an Achilles problem. And it, result- it actually came from his left shoulder. And the biomechanics of having a shoulder problem ended up him having that right Achilles problem that went with it. So it was interesting to see the, <laughs> the crossover between the two and how that affected his biomechanics. So, yeah. Interesting. So I guess we can move on now and kind of maybe talk about the you want some acceleration. So teaching acceleration to those field based athletes. So just the general principles you like to go about there and um, what what you like to focus on there. Yeah. So with acceleration, the biggest thing that for any athlete or coach is you need to understand the athletes probably don't know how to project out properly at the moment. And when I mean project, I mean if you're standing in a two point start or they're like where they're facing wherever they're going to run through is they don't know how to push out of that start when they when they don't have like a drop in or they don't have like a, a walk in kind of start. So you need to teach projection number one and you need to teach them how to project horizontally, not vertically. So this is a key thing that I see a lot is a lot of athletes project up rather than out. And so to project out, it's, it's making sure the athlete understands the context, context of how it feels to jump forwards. And Simple things that you can do if you've got a sand pit or you've got somewhere where an athlete is able to jump forwards, then just get them to physically go from two feet, start with two feet, jump forwards like you're doing a long jump, and then get them to transition to doing staggered stance and doing the exact same thing. Um, some people you like to use even like a high jump mat or even just like a foam mat or something where they can at least jump out and there's no fear of like falling or hurting themselves. So we need to understand that these guys need to learn how to project out first. It's every athlete I worked with has had the same problem. They don't know how to fully extend out of the first first initial push. Most athletes will half push. They'll get to a point where their knee's still in a flexed state and then they've already left the ground. So they're not able to triple extend out of that position and horizontally push. The next thing after that you need to look at in the put in the projection is then the arm drive. So instead of not just pushing out, you need to make sure your arms extend at a split as well. So if you're starting with your left foot up and then your right leg's coming through after you push out, your left arm needs to split high and your right arm needs to split even further back as well because that split with the arms helps with the extension of forwards as well. So if you were to do that, a test with your athletes and get them to actually just push out without using their arms and then get them to do another rep pushing out with their arms, they'll go further. So this is a key thing is understanding the upper body with punching the elbow through drives you out and forward as well. Um, so that's one okay. thing to focus on. And, and just to start is a massive thing. If you can get you guys to start better, they will cover an extra two, three meters, probably in that first 10 meters better, right? And then we can look at the first step and how when you're bringing that down and back underneath your center of mass and um, how that can react when you want to keep pushing forward, so the biggest thing with your athletes is getting them to learn how to push rather than um, just run and, and try and go for frequency. 
the first 10 meters is all about pushing, right? Pushing horizontally rather than vertically. Otherwise, a lot, otherwise, if you do push vertically to begin with, your athletes will stand up early. And if it means they won't be able to transition to top speed at all. So they'll, they'll be very delayed uh, or even just hitting it too early and they won't be able to get there to full flight. So we want to teach them how to push horizontally and then we can then look at the other actions of the legs such as scissoring the legs through rather than trying to punch the knee. So there's a common thing. If you do a wall drill, which is a great exercise for coaches, if you a simple one that you can do with the whole team, a wall drill is teaching the athletes to strike, to push their knee forward, but make sure they're hitting it with the upper part of their knee. So meaning if I was looking at where the VMO is and the vastus lateralis is, is, is like if you had a pad there and you're kneeing someone, is knee them with that part. Don't knee them with the kneecap. So this is another key thing is just thinking about that's how you swing your leg through forwards rather than up. Okay, so that's two different things between that. And then you want to kind of scissor your legs in a um, like a, a flexed scissor motion, not trying to cycle it straight away. So with a lot of athletes, especially team sport, initially they'll try and cycle from the first push. And if you start cycling your legs, what happens is you stand up quicker as well. So you stand up earlier, more vertical. So teaching guys for the first two to three steps to scissor with a flexed position, that will actually help them with the context of how to push as well. And then you can cycle the legs after that. So there's a lot that kind of goes into acceleration. It's, it's massive. But for team sport athletes, this is, this is what you need. You know, you're not competing in a 100-meter sprint like me or some other track and field guys, but you need to learn how to accelerate properly. And it all starts with the start. If you're playing rugby league and, you know, you're, the referee's there and you're standing next to him with your front foot up, you need to be able to project out and know how to do that properly. Or if you want to run onto the ball harder and hit the hole harder, you need to be able to project out of that first start. There's obviously other drills we can do too, such as a drop-in start. It's a great exercise to overcome... You know, if anyone's got any injuries or anything going on, is that an athlete can still do acceleration work with over, without having the force of kind of and the strain of overcoming gravity and inertia and their own body weight. So there's there's just a couple exercises you can do like a rollover start, a falling start to teach these angles, which is great. So there's plenty of drills that you can use, but those are the main things to focus on. Mm-hmm. And just going back to that with scissoring versus cycling, do you want to just kind of explain maybe the differences between that and, um, yeah, just explain that a little bit? Yeah, so a, pretty much a, a scissoring your legs is like if you were to bend your knee just slightly and keep it in that flex position and dorsiflex the, t- the ankle, sorry, and you would just to kind of swing your leg forwards, right? And if anyone that's doing this, listen, just swing your legs forwards and then d- just do it with your left leg and you'll feel what that looks like. It feels like a piston, right? That's what they talk about pistons is actually meant to swing your leg forward, right? And what will happen is is everyone talks about low kind of heel recovery, especially in kind of pro sport. That's what will happen. If you are swinging your legs like from a flex scissor position, your legs will swing through with a low heel recovery, right? So what that means is as soon as you try and bring your leg back and you swing it back towards you, that, that swing back towards you will be down and back, so that allows you to push then horizontally to move forward. Whereas if I was to cycle from the get-go, my leg cycles forward and then it comes straight down towards the ground, which means it, it, you're pushing vertically straight away towards the ground rather than down and back. So it's kind of understanding the difference between what is a horizontal push and then what is a vertical push. And generally when you cycle, you're going to start pushing more vertically. 
So we want our guys in the first two to three steps of their runs pushing horizontally. And it, I've seen a few different posts there that may that have showed different starts. Like if you were doing a 10-meter race, you would change your biomechanics compared to a 100-meter race, which is true in some capacity. But if you see some of the best 100-meter runners, they all push with that swing of the leg horizontally with the scissors and they're able to cover the quickest 10-meter times. So it's like I don't think the biomechanics change depending on the length of the race. It just the athlete's context of how to push horizontally needs to change. And how their frequency also changes as well. Okay. So now now we kind of cover a little bit more of that acceleration. Maybe we can talk about uh, your main focuses for that top speed and top uh, velocity. Yeah. So main focus on top velocity apart from obviously running biomechanics. And when we've ticked that box and the athletes are able to work with front side mechanics, they're stepping down in, in line with their center of mass. They're, able, they're not spending too long on the ground. They're not collapsing from the knee, the ankle, and the hip on ground contact. You know, they're, they're staying nice and tall, good core control. They've got great arm drive, um, all these key biomarkers that we look for. You know, then we can obviously progress the exercises to do more um, wicket drills and so forth like that. And the wicket drills mainly just works on rhythm. And rhythm is something that we really need, especially in – maximum velocity is a lot of athletes try and push too hard when you get to top speed you can't go any further than that so now it's just about making sure that we're maintaining what we've got and a great exercise that you can do with you guys is i call it we call it a build fast hold so basically you build for 30 meters and you run you like you're accelerating then you go as fast as you can for 20 30 meters and then you hold for another 30 meters so the the hold is meant to teach you the context of maintaining and relaxing like relaxing and having just rhythm. So this is just a great exercise with you guys once they get to that point. Flying 30s are a great exercise if you're in team sports to work on maximum velocity qualities. So we're looking at 95% to 100% of intensity if for, to truly work on top speed and making sure that we're working on it. If we're going to give a rep range, a great rep range is anywhere from three to six reps uh, total in the session. So if you're doing flying 30s, then a great way is you can challenge your athletes and say, hey, look, guys, we're going to do, you know, flying 30s, you know, athlete A runs in 30 meters, 3.1 seconds, for example. You can give them and say, hey, you just ran 3.1. I want you to try and beat it on the next rep, right? So you can challenge the athletes a little bit more. You can give them a bit more of a goal. So they're going to push a little bit harder, but then we need to make sure their technique is lining up with that as well. So just, mm-hmm. just some things to consider, but... Those are some great drills that you can do for maximum kind of velocity qualities. And then if you start to see their technique breaking down when it's happening, then just kind of go back and do uh, reduce the intensity a little bit and get them to run at 90% instead of 95 and see if that works. And um, generally nine times out of 10, if they're, they're doing that, then they're actually going to feel like they're running faster as well. Mm. Sometimes the fastest runs that you'll ever do are the ones that you don't feel like you're running that fast. So it's, uh, it's a common common thing that a lot of athletes mm. with that PB on something, they actually don't feel like they're running that fast. So yeah. they're, they're just in rhythm and in sync. Yeah. Um, and I guess you can <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong here, but so if, if someone, if someone's trying to work on that top speed, top velocity, um, they're, they, I mean, they're going to have to be really, really close to hitting that in order to you know, progress as you're training that specifically. So I think that's a good point you're making there with, um, you know, if you're working on top speed, that means you're going to have to be close to top speed, um, if where you need proper rest time and so on. So maybe just a little bit like, yeah, just like a little mini segment on, you know, like 
you making sure you get the proper rest time. And then I, I looked at some study or, or something they posted, someone posted about um, just that, you know, if they decrease their rest time, their percentages of their, the, the top velocity are, are really drop off. So that even though they might feel like they're giving the same speed, they're really quite different. Yeah, exactly. Like in the rest periods are massive. We need to make sure that with speed work is that we're giving our athletes a significant amount of rest. And if you're in a team sport such as rugby league, soccer, netball, you know, AFL, and I understand your your football coach might be like, hey, I want you guys to be working all the time and on the ball. But if you want your athletes to get quicker, this is generally the rest protocol. You've got to give you guys five to eight minutes rest in between reps. Like if you're doing six reps of a flying 30, give them five to eight minutes in between rest, you know, in between reps. And, and you know what? They'll be able to maintain, if not better their times. So it's it's a hard thing, especially in team sports, when you've got that is communicating it back to the coach saying, hey, look, you want faster athletes or you want to run fast, you've got to let these guys rest because their central nervous system needs time to recover between, between reps, all right? And something that we need to think about for team sports is, is increasing maximum velocity speed will also increase acceleration speed, right? So if you increase top end, they will also increase their 30 meter times. So this is some things to consider for a lot of coaches out there is saying, look, definitely focus on the maximum velocity components. Don't just do acceleration work all the time and just focus just on that. Like you need to definitely do uh, maximum velocity work because the more top end you increase, the better they're going to accelerate as well. So even for athletes that are listening out there, the same thing is give yourself, if you're going to rest for acceleration periods, two to three minutes in between reps, five minutes in between sets. If your maximum velocity, it's five to eight minutes in between reps, anywhere from five to eight minutes in between sets as well. And that's generally the rest protocol. Yeah. And then I guess we've kind of talked about, touched on, sorry, acceleration and um, top speed. Is there anything specifically you work on deceleration wise or do you do much deceleration work? Track guys, uh, not necessarily because that generally they run through team sport guys, 100%. Yeah. Every session that we do, we're working on deceleration mechanics or change of direction in some capacity. Um, I think it's very important and that's generally how you can build a lot of hamstring resilience as well is by working on deceleration mechanics. Um, I remember I kind of learnt from, I think it was Christian Woodford down in Melbourne. He was doing some deceleration work with his athletes and, and just teaching them how to when they're going quicker feet to then wider feet as well to widen their base and getting a little bit lower. So it was interesting to see that and then implement that with my guys and see how positive of an effect that had. So learning from other coaches is definitely advantageous, um, but deceleration mechanics can help acceleration mechanics as well. So being able to stop and start and go again is what we look for even with repeat sprint ability as well. So teaching, it's just like when we're looking, if you want to run faster with sports, you need to, there's three things you need to focus on, absorbing force in the ground, transmitting force, and then producing it, right? So a lot of coaches are really good at producing force and a lot of athletes are great at producing it, but they're not good at absorbing force. So they're not good at landing, they're not good at decelerating, they're not good at changing direction. So we need to work harder on eccentric training. We need to work hard on deceleration work and uh, landing mechanics. So then the athlete can then know how to land with stiffer ground contacts then be able to transmit the absorption of force to then produce what they want to produce. So if you want you guys to run quicker, get them to land better, get them to make sure that they're decelerating faster, 
And also they're able to change, you know, transmit that force as well. So in the gym, you can do an exercise. There's good ones that are like death jumps that you can do that work on reactivity and absorption. You can do like a uh, box kind of you, where you drop off the box and land. Um, just exercises, simple ones with landing mechanics, just teach the context of what we're trying to do with higher, more advanced plyometric exercises and running. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you have any specific drills, like field drills first, and then we can you, um, maybe go into some just general gym-based for, for all things, but field-based drills you would like to work on for that deceleration and uh, change of direction or agility? Yeah, so the one drill I really like to use that's very easy and you can get heaps of athletes doing it is set up 20 meters. You've got a cone at 10 meters, so 0, 10, 20. Then you've got like a, a – it's a box shape, okay? So you've got like a box shape. So you'll have um, like a – rectangle sorry like a rectangle like you've got there that's the kind of the drill you're gonna jog to the first cone sprint to the second cone and then stop on the second the third cone right so you got to work on kind of accelerate sprint stop so you're working on decelerating at high speeds which is great and then that if they're not in the right position then you can teach them what position they need to be in then you get to them to laterally move because then you can work on their change of direction mechanics to the next kind of cone where it's on the other side of the rectangle and then you can get them to do the jog, sprint, stop again. So it's like a circle. You're basically doing almost like a rectangle circle where you're doing jog, sprint, stop, jog, sprint, stop and you can get those guys doing that four times, you know, then they're getting a good amount of load and they're working on their deceleration. That's a great exercise I use for the team sport guys. Um, anything that can where they've got to change speeds quickly is just going to benefit them and help. Uh, but that's one where you're able to jog and then sprint. You can do the same thing where you do it from a standing start. You do 10 meters, sprint, stop on the cone, you know, exact same thing. But it's just the teaching tools of how to get lower when you're decelerating, making sure that you're in like a base, good base position. Um, and then you're not stopping where your, your knees are straight and your knees are where you're nice and tall. You want to get lower when you're trying to decelerate it's a lot easier for us to control our body weight that way would you agree with that one yeah yeah so i was going to say like maybe uh, you want to talk briefly just on the kind of mechanics of that deceleration and any mechanics mechanics of that kind of changing or shifting your body weight one way or the other yeah so pretty much when you're decelerating you are landing in front of your center of hips center of mass because you have to that's you know you're striking the ground with your heel first it's always going to happen heel to toe but it, when you're doing it and you're able to kind of get lower with a more flexed position and you widen your feet up a little bit more with faster feet, you can then uh, absorb the ground quicker, especially when you're trying to slow down faster. Um, so the lower that you do get and you need to keep your chest kind of in line, if not over your knees at the same time. Otherwise, if you're really vertical, then you're going to fall forward as soon as you stop. So it's it's hard to kind of explain too much, but that's... If I had a picture of it, I'd show everyone and how to do it. But um, pretty much that's what you're doing. You are kind of striking in front of your center of mass to begin with and then you're going quicker feet and then you really want to just do one, two, three, four, then stop. So you're doing almost four steps before you're going to stop on the line. So you need to understand the difference between if you've got five meters to run to and stop on the cone, then that's when you need to start decelerating. Like it needs to start happening then. You can't, you're not going to decelerate from 10 meters out. It's going to be five. Because you want to get as close to the target or the player or whoever is possible without them being able to laterally beat you. So yep. that's something that you're looking at is maybe five to ten, five meters away from, then you'll start decelerating. Mm-hmm. 
And then I guess we can maybe talk about a little bit with some strength exercises or things you like to work on the gym, um, any exercises. Uh, I don't know it's going to be varied and dependent on uh, what they need to work on, but anything you find beneficial that uh, I know you mentioned, mentioned eccentrics a little bit more for that absorbing the force or anything uh, like that you like to work on gym, gym wise or strength resistance training wise. Yeah. So you got, if I was working on acceleration qualities and I was in the gym, what I really focus on with my guys is maximum strength. So this is a great opportunity. Maximum strength works really well with acceleration. Um, it's just more strength and power kind of indices as well, which is great. So, you know, you've got your box squats, you've got your, your RDLs, you've got your deadlifts, you've got all different squat and, and pull variations. Um, and that's what I generally do on acceleration days. You do heavier kind of power cleans as well if you're looking at working on that kind of starting kind of strength uh, and power. Uh, generally for plyometric, even in the gym, if I was working on acceleration development, I'd do obviously standing kind of broad jumps, standing box jumps. Anything that's not reactive is what you'll do for acceleration kind of days. Because when we're looking at maximum velocity kind of days, we're working on speed development. That's when you're looking at uh, more so lighter kind of resistance power cleans. You're looking at accelerative abilities such as reactive jumps. Um, you'd be looking even at reactive throws. So med ball exercises that are where you jump in front of yourself, then you throw the jump up again. Anything that involves like a, t- a double jump is going to work more on maximum velocity speed qualities. Whereas if you're doing like static jumps, it's all acceleration kind of qualities and throws. So acceleration throws, for example, might be like a chest pass that you see with the med ball. That's going to work more on the acceleration component. But if I was, or a underhand, oh, sorry, overhead backwards throw would work the same thing. It's all static positions getting into a triple extension position. So when we're doing a lot of power movements, we want to think about getting into that triple extension, hip, knee, and ankle, right? And so that's where you got your plyos and your Olympic lifting and all your med ball exercises that will be able to do that for you. Um, and you'll get a much better translation in that in the gym. If I'm looking at some more kind of eccentric training for maximum velocity, I'll do... Uh, basically if I was doing a Bulgarian, for example, I'll get them to basically jump and then catch that position on the ground again. So some people do like a jump, like a plyo kind of jump, and then they've got to catch the position again. So we're really thinking about, like I said, absorbing the ground, you know, making sure that we're doing that fast kind of catch for the eccentric. Um, Another one is an RDL that I'll do, like a modified where you do an RDL and then you kind of almost drop the bar and recatch it again. So you let go of the bar in a certain position above the knee and then you catch it below the knee in an RDL. And what that does is because it simulates the exact same feeling of um, when you're striking the ground in top speed. So the hamstrings will get the exact same feeling. So if I'm doing that, because it's like grabs the hamstring at the same time. So we're training that kind of ability when you're running at top speed that your body's already adjusted to that. So we're creating a bit of hamstring resilience there too. So just little things with eccentric training. They found that if you're at like the K-box or the eccentric box that you might start seeing where it pulls you down, that's another great exercise. Eccentric training is probably my favorite thing to do that translates into top speed qualities. I think you can lift more with it. You can also, it has a much better translation and transition onto the track as well and the field. And then you can also just produce force later. So 
that's generally kind of what I'd look at. And then in the gym, lastly, would be more resilience and work capacity work where you're looking at rep ranges of 15 to 20 and you're doing, you know, single leg RDLs or you're doing things to make sure that, you know, Copenhagen adductor holds to make sure you're fixing those small intricate muscles there and just supporting them, making sure so then they don't break down over the next mm. training block. And uh, one thing I want uh, that, yeah, that was all really good for the gym based stuff and touched on every um, kind of the acceleration and top speed. Uh, and then we kind of want to go back to when you were talking about implementing this in the team setting. So um, gym, gym wise, it's probably, you know, more realistic to implement that in the team setting, but I know you're really passionate too about making sure you get field works really important. And you stress that that's something that uh, you really believe should be a, a priority. So how do you, uh, recommend or what's what's your best way to, to make sure you're getting this field work in in team settings when like you were saying beforehand you know you're gonna have to get all this all this rest if you really want to work on top speed um and then how i guess how do you make it work with um just trying to get the coaches bought in or the players to understand uh, and so on yeah this is the constant daily struggle um and and fortunately enough i don't work in that professional kind of sporting environment anymore where you're dealing with very direct coaches that will tell you exactly what they think. You know what I mean? They're, they're never not shy of telling you that. I think the, the biggest thing as a coach when you're dealing with with your other coaching staff is is making sure that when you put together your plan and get, present them to them, saying, "Look, do you like you need to think about the trade offs? Do you want our guys to be fast, or do you want them to be, you know, just fit? Do you want them to be fast and fit, or do you want them just to be fit?" Right, And this is the thing we need to communicate with our coaching staff is saying, look, to actually get these guys faster, we need to do, we need to give them rest time. So some things that I like to do in field work is if they do a maximum velocity rep, say for example, a flying 30, then what I'll get them to do is I'll get them to do some ball skills in between, right? So simple and effective thing that you can do. So if they're a rugby league player, I'll get them to do passing drills. So they've got five minutes rest, they'll go straight over there to do some passing drills and work on their skill work. So at least they're still moving. The coach loves it. You know, they're still working on, you're kind of hitting two birds in one stone. If you're a soccer player, the exact same thing. Go and get your athletes to do a bit of skill work in between reps. Like nothing that involves them running or doing anything like that, but it might just involve them uh, juggling the ball or whatever it may be. That's just such an effective way of doing it. And you can you can hit, you, your coaches will be happy. So I haven't found a coach that's been disappointed with that. And I was able to get the results that I want. Um, so instead of it kind of being afraid of saying to your coach, look, this is my idea for the session. I need to work on speed work with my guys, right? We need to give them five minutes rest in between sets. What ball skills drill do you want to do in between that? So then mm-hmm. they can still keep moving, right? Yeah. And you'll be like, yep, cool. And you should be able to get in a coach that will agree with that. If they don't, then they're just, they just don't believe in your philosophy. and They don't believe <laughs> yeah. in what you're doing at all. So yeah, that's, that's one thing I'd work on field work. Yeah, and I, I think I think that really applies to athletes as well because I feel like a lot of times too, if you're working with an athlete, they're sitting there like, "Well, I'm not tired. Like, what am I? I'm not. What, you're not. Is this even doing anything? I'm not even exhausted or anything." So I think yeah, that giving them explaining it to them probably, and then giving them something that they can keep you know working on progressing themselves while they're resting to then do it on the rep is probably very beneficial. Yeah, well, you look at like just touching on that is like if you if you do proper speed work with your guys, they're going to become neurally fatigued. Right, and it'll be different type of fatigue that they're used to. So yeah. some of the athletes may be like, "Oh, look, I'm feeling really flat right now," and then you know that they're neurally fatigued. So don't mess with the fact that you know 
good quality speed work is going to fatigue these guys. It's just going to hit them at rep four, five, or six when they're not really expecting it. So yeah. it's it's an understanding of as a coach to ask your athletes the question, saying how are you feeling now, like, and they'll be like, yeah, I'm feeling a bit flat, and then you know, sweet, like you've got them, you've dialed their CNS, then you're really fatigued, like you've worked on what you needed to work on. Mm. Yeah, definitely a different type of fatigue for sure. Uh, I guess we'll go kind of last question here. What would you say your main, so if you're implementing a program or giving an, uh, an athlete on some advice, uh, what would you say the main progression you would kind of work on to develop um, the speed? Would you work on uh, working on your technique first and acceleration or the just top speed work or, you know, kind of what, what's your recommendation there? Yeah. Any athlete that you want to get quicker, we need to fundamentally go back to technique. That's number one. And it will always probably be number one. Uh, next thing is we need to think about our athletes need to sprint. They need to sprint every week. They need to sprint in some capacity. It doesn't need to be at 90, 100%. It can be at sub-max 80%. It can be at 75, 60, you know, but they need to be running at least every week. Um, I think with the, the technique aspects, we need to definitely keep drilling in the start, projecting out, making sure they're learning the scissor. Like to learn the scissor for a good quality athlete will take six months. So if you're working with grassroots athletes, it's going to take them a year or two years to get it right, you know, to learn actually how to push out properly. Um, so if you're going back to the fundamental technique and just being patient as a coach and not worrying so much about the, uh, the loading parameters and how we can you know, progressively overload volume over time, if I've got an athlete for 12 weeks, all I'm going to be focusing on is technique. I'm not going to even be thinking about running them at 95%. If they're an AFL player and they're training three times a week, then I'll just, and I'm seeing them once a week, I'll only work technically on them and just do things at 80, 80%, 70 to 80%, whether it's maximum velocity work or acceleration work or whatever, because when they go to training, they're going to be running at 95, 100% anyway. So it's my role as a coach to get them technically better because if I can get them technically better, then they're going to run faster anyway. So that's mm-hmm. the key thing. Don't worry so much about the loading parameters until you fix their technique then you want them to sprint kind of all year round, which is very important, is to excel- do acceleration work all year round. And then you can start kind of getting a little bit fancy and throwing in a little bit more of your gym kind of components. Uh, you can look at, you know, doing kind of cross training or contrast training. And, you know, when you get into the gym, you can do a, like a heavy lift into a plyometric jump. You know what I mean? Since this whole COVID situation's happened, like I've actually got faster not being in the gym and not doing more, which has been more we've been working on technique with my training mm. squad and my coach. And um, ever since we've improved running biomechanics, like I'm running better. So I think it's important for just if you can keep working with your athletes, if it's for a preseason, work on the technical component, then in season, they'll actually get faster from what you're teaching them. Yeah. Perfect. Is there, is there, uh, I guess, uh, just a quick summary or main, some couple more main points, or if we've missed any main points, you want to hit home really quick before we hop on off? Um, yeah, lastly, like I just said, we'll probably touch on it a bit there. Uh, just be patient with your athletes. Focus on running biomechanics and thinking about that as a way of preventing injury as well. Um, like I said, all, think about all your athletes at the moment probably aren't running with the best technique. So we need to think about improving that first. If you can improve that, the guys will run faster. They will get better results. They'll get probably selected for rep teams. They'll get exactly what you're looking for, right? So focus on field work. Think about change of direction work. The ratio I like to use is two to one. So two, two days in the field, one day in the gym. Two days in the field, one day in the gym. So then you're maintaining 
that the gym is a supplementary kind of process to what you're trying to do. It's not the main sport. Um, and I think you should be honing in on running mechanics every session in some way, whether it's, you know, you're doing a, you're doing Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday sessions and, you know, some of them even ball skills, you know, your feedback as a coach is so important to these guys and saying, remember that A-skip drill, remember that B-skip drill. So also lastly, just to reiterate, think about your warm-ups. Make sure that, you know, you are doing proper A-skips, B-skips. You're not just kind of throwing them in there because it looks cool. Like make sure the athletes actually know how to do them properly. If they don't know how to do them properly, then, you know, it's not an effective warm-up and they are wasting their time. But yeah, just have fun with it and just focus on technique. Awesome. Uh, thanks for being on. Do you want to just shout out where people can follow you on any of your social medias, your website, where they can contact you if they want either their coach or an athlete trying to get some work and knowledge from you? Yeah. So if anyone's on Instagram, it's the running coach with an underscore underneath it, or sorry, at the end. Uh, Facebook, it's just called the running coach as well. The website is www.therunningcoach.com.au. Um, I'm located in Sydney down in Cronulla, so in the Shire. Um, so if anyone's in Sydney and they want to work with me as an athlete or even just as a coach, I do offer professional workshops for coaches. Um, I've actually got a seminar booked down in Melbourne, which is great on the first and second of August. And hopefully I'll have one soon booked in Brisbane and, and just in different places in Sydney where I can help a lot of SNC coaches, physios, exercise physiologists and personal trainers get their athletes faster. And so they can take it back and implement it with their team sports. So feel free to reach out and I'll respond to you as soon as possible. Awesome. Thanks again for being on, Brandon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick.